And was there a particular point that, or something that you read or an experience you had that sort of said, yeah, this is it, God doesn't exist? Oh, well, by far the most important, I suppose, was understanding evolution. Um, I think the evangelical Christians have really sort of got it right in a way in seeing uh, evolution as the enemy. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and in this episode, we are going to answer the question, is a belief in evolution and millions of years compatible with Christianity? In other words, can a Christian be consistent in their worldview if they do not think that Genesis records true history? And when I say Genesis, I specifically mean Genesis chapters 1 to 11, because this is where all the controversy lies. It must be noted that this episode will strictly be concerned with whether or not the biblical text itself is congruent with the evolutionary view of origins, so we will not discuss any scientific evidence in this episode. I want to begin by providing a brief definition of four terms. The first term is Young Earth Creationist. Young Earth Creationists believe that all of Genesis is scientifically and historically accurate. Therefore, Young Earth Creationists believe that the universe, Earth, and every kind of animal were all created within a six-day period about 6,000 years ago. The second term I want to look at is theistic evolution, which is the belief that God used evolution and millions of years to bring humans into existence. Theistic evolutionists do not believe Genesis is scientifically or historically accurate. 3. The Gap Theory Gap theorists believe that there is a large gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Therefore, gap theorists believe that God created the universe and earth and then waited for millions of years before beginning his famous six days of creation. It must be noted that some gap theorists do not believe in evolution, but instead just believe that the universe and earth are billions of years old. Our fourth and last term is the day-age theory. Day-age theorists believe that the six days of creation mentioned in Genesis 1 are not literal days, but rather long periods of time. Day-age theorists typically believe in evolution and millions of years. So, while gap theorists put their millions of years between the first and second verses of Genesis 1, day-age theorists spread their millions of years throughout each day of God's creative work in Genesis 1. Now that we've defined some terms, let's look at what is so controversial about these opening chapters of Genesis. The three main passages which have evoked the most controversy in modern times, and the reasons why they have evoked controversy are as follows. 1. The creation account in Genesis 1. 
If this passage is taken literally, then it would mean that God created the universe, earth, every kind of animal, and mankind all within a six-day period. This creation narrative has been mocked in recent times because it completely contradicts the standard evolutionary explanation of life, which asserts that all organisms alive today have evolved over millions of years and therefore stem from a common, single-celled ancestor that existed approximately 3.5 billion years ago. 2. Adam and Eve and their genealogy Critics note that if the creation story of Adam and Eve and their genealogy are taken literally, that would mean Earth and all of mankind would be approximately 6,000 years old. This clearly contradicts the evolutionary timeline, which claims that the universe is 14 billion years old, Earth is 4.5 billion years old, and human beings have evolved over millions of years and have been in their current state for hundreds of thousands of years. 3. The Flood of Noah Critics claim that there is no way the entire world could have been flooded 4,000 years ago, and that there is definitely no way that only eight people took care of thousands of animals on a large boat for a whole year. If the entire world was flooded only 4,000 years ago, then one would need to interpret disciplines such as geology and paleontology through a very different lens. Instead of looking at different rock layers and thinking they were laid down over millions of years, believing in the flood of Noah would result in one thinking that these different layers were placed down rapidly because of the catastrophe of the flood. Now, I want to approach this subject from a unique angle. In previous episodes, I explained that in order for Christians to ensure they have correct theological beliefs, they must utilize what is known as systematic theology. Because the entire Bible is inspired by God, and God knows all things and cannot lie, one cannot form doctrine by isolating a few passages and ignoring the rest of the Bible. Instead, if we are to have a consistent and truthful Christian worldview, we must take into account the entire Bible. Therefore, a major goal of this episode is to make you think about Genesis for what it truly is, which is one piece in a 66-piece puzzle. Because the Bible contains 66 books, which are all fully inspired by God, each book is like an individual puzzle piece. Just like every piece of a puzzle must fit together perfectly for it to work, so must the teachings found in one book of the Bible be consistent with the teachings found in every other book of the Bible. This is the only way to have a Christian worldview that is logically consistent. Therefore, before we even take a look at anything Genesis says about creation, Adam and Eve, or the flood of Noah, I'm going to quickly present 10 passages which concern these topics that are not even found in Genesis. Let's begin.
1. In Exodus 20, verses 9 to 11, God gives the Israelites the Sabbath command and says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, notice that God explicitly states here he created everything in a six-day period, and it appears that the primary reason he did this was to give humans a weekly pattern to follow. 2. In Mark 10, verses 6 to 8, Jesus quotes directly from Genesis 1 and 2 and says, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Notice that Jesus says God made male and female at the beginning of creation, not millions of years after creation, which is what the evolutionary worldview proposes. 3. 1 Timothy 2 verses 13 to 14 say that Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. This New Testament passage obviously treats the creation account of Adam and Eve as being historically accurate. 4. Jude 14 states that Enoch was the seventh from Adam which strictly follows the genealogy of Adam's lineage as presented in Genesis 5. 5. In Luke 11, verses 50-51, to 51, Jesus says that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel, unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Jesus' mention of Abel here is significant, because Abel was the son of Adam and Eve that was killed by Cain. And notice that Jesus conveys that Abel's death occurred at the foundation, or beginning, of the world not millions of years later. 6. Hebrews 11.4 says that by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. This verse also clearly treats the history in Genesis 4 as being historically accurate. 7. In Matthew 24, verses 37-39, when Jesus is talking about his second coming, he says that as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. If the flood of Noah was just figurative and did not affect the entire earth, 
then one would logically have to conclude that the return of Jesus is also figurative and will not affect the entire earth, because Jesus makes a direct comparison between his second coming and the flood of Noah here. 8. In Isaiah 54 verse 9, God expresses mercy by stating that just as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. If the flood of Noah did not happen, or if it was just a local flood that did not cover the entire earth, then God would be a liar because God said he would never make such a flood happen ever again, and there have been countless local floods in history. 9. Hebrews 11.7 says that by faith Noah, being warned of God of the things not seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. It is critical to note that Hebrews 11 mentions multiple Old Testament characters within the same context, such as Abel, as mentioned earlier, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. So if Abel and Noah did not actually exist, then neither did these other characters, which would be a death blow to the foundation of Christianity because Jesus treated all of these figures as being 100% real. 10. 2 Peter 2.5 states that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so here again, Peter treats the flood of Noah as a historically accurate global event. Even though I just briefly went over 10 passages which treat Genesis as being historically and scientifically accurate, it must be noted that there are more than two dozen passages I could have discussed, totaling well over 50 individual verses. Altogether, the topics of creation Adam and Eve, and the flood of Noah are mentioned in 16 books of the Bible. Going back to the topic of systematic theology and analyzing the Bible as a whole, I must point out that every time you investigate any theological question, you will always find completely opposing views which attempt to use scripture to support their position. And I honestly mean that. Every major theological question, including, is Jesus God? Does one have to be baptized in water to be saved? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Is hell eternal? Etc. All have people with totally opposite views who think that the Bible supports their view. However, in all of these situations, there is always a clear winner because one side has an abundance of straightforward verses, and the other side only has a small handful of somewhat ambiguous verses. That's what is so amazing about the Bible. God has given us an intricate message 
that cannot be broken. And the primary way he has done that is by spreading important information throughout the Bible. In other words, every major doctrine is established by multiple verses which are scattered throughout the entire Bible. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is not just found in the Gospel of John. It is also found all throughout Paul's epistles, Revelation, and the Old Testament books of Zechariah and Isaiah. The doctrine of salvation by faith alone is not just found in the book of Romans. It is also found in the book of Acts, Ephesians, Psalms, and Genesis. The eternal nature of hell is not just found in Revelation. It is also found in Daniel, Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and Isaiah. Now, just like these doctrines and every other important Christian doctrine, the correct belief of how God created the universe and life itself is not just found in Genesis. As we have seen, it is also found in Exodus, Job, Mark, 1 Timothy, and many more books of the Bible. As I stated earlier, according to my count, the details of Genesis 1-11 through are mentioned in 16 books total. And now, here's a very important question to ponder. How many verses support the opposing view, which is that Genesis should be taken figuratively, or that God created earth and life over billions of years in evolution? The answer is none. Other than a couple of verses from Isaiah and Jeremiah, which are grossly taken out of context, proponents of a non-historical view of Genesis have no evidence for their position. We will go over the arguments people typically use to promote a non-literal view of Genesis, but right now I want to stress the fact that other than trying to pick apart the actual text of Genesis itself, there are no biblical passages from outside of Genesis that convincingly support an old earth or evolution. Believe it or not, if you examine other theological questions, such as the deity of Christ, the eternal nature of hell, the virgin birth, etc., you'll find that the quantity of verses which support a literal understanding of Genesis is actually equal to, and sometimes even greater than, the number of verses which support these other major doctrines. And this is why it is so dangerous to deny that Genesis is historically and scientifically accurate. Because if one takes a non-literal view of Genesis, then they surrender any logical basis for accepting other biblical truths. For example, I fully believe in the Trinity, and I believe this doctrine is essential which means that one cannot be a saved Christian if they do not actively accept this doctrine. However, if you just look purely at the quantity and clarity of verses which support the Trinity versus the quantity and clarity of verses that support Genesis as being literal, 
the evidence which supports Genesis as being literal is on par with the evidence for the Trinity. Therefore, if one is to ignore the overwhelming evidence for a literal Genesis, then they are subjecting themselves to hermeneutical anarchy, and they can no longer logically defend other important doctrines, such as the Trinity or the Second Coming of Christ. And that's why this topic is so important. It's not about how God could have created. It's about, do you believe what God says? Because if one denies the overwhelming evidence for a literal Genesis, then they lose any foundation for a proper view of biblical inspiration, inerrancy, and authority, which, as we covered on the last three episodes, these three beliefs are essential to having a consistent Christian worldview. Now, I want to specifically mention how the New Testament makes it impossible for any Christian to honestly deny the history in Genesis. This is because multiple times the New Testament links the history in Genesis with essential truths about the work and person of Jesus Christ. The first example I want to bring up is the genealogy of Jesus that can be found in Luke chapter 3. This genealogy begins by noting that Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, and so on and so on. And 15 verses later, Luke's genealogy ends by noting that Jesus' distant ancestors included Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Luke also includes other Old Testament figures in Jesus' genealogy, such as King David, Abraham, and Noah. Now, the obvious conclusion here is that if one believes that Adam or Noah never existed, then they have no logical basis for believing that Jesus existed either. If just one person in Jesus' genealogy never existed, then there is no assurance that any other person in the genealogy existed. Because Christianity hinges on the work and person of Jesus Christ, if one claims to be a Christian, yet chooses to disregard any person in Luke's genealogy of Jesus as being non-historical, they have a major inconsistency in their beliefs. Another insurmountable problem which arises from a non-literal interpretation of Genesis can be found in Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 to 19 note that by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So we see here that Romans 5 makes a direct comparison between Adam and Jesus. Paul states that just as Adam's sin brought upon the fall of humanity and introduced death into the world, the righteous work of Jesus Christ reversed this fall by making the offer of eternal life available to the entire world. This lines up perfectly with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22, that in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. The comparison of Adam to Jesus is so important because it truly demonstrates that Christians must accept that Adam truly existed. Otherwise, they have no basis for their belief in the work and person of Jesus. Since Jesus' atoning sacrifice is contrasted with the fall of Adam, if there was no fall of Adam, then there cannot be any atoning sacrifice. This passage in Romans 5 is yet another death blow to theistic evolution because it asserts that by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Because death is a consequence of the sin that Adam and Eve committed, evolution is clearly irreconcilable with Christianity because if man got here by evolutionary means, then death would have occurred for millions of years before man sinned. Proponents of theistic evolution usually claim that this verse is only talking about human death, so it is fine to have animals and plants dying before Adam's sin. First, it must be noted that plants do not die in the biblical sense. This is because plants do not have the breath of life in them. They were made to be a resource for us and be used for food, materials, etc. As far as animals are concerned, Genesis 7.15 does say that animals have the breath of life in them. The Bible even implies that even though God has given man dominion over every creature on earth, God does not find the suffering of animals to be a good thing. Proverbs 12.10 notes that a righteous man regards the life of his beast, and Isaiah 65 notes that there will be a future time of joy and peace when the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Because God describes his original creation as being very good in Genesis 1, it seems inconsistent then to believe that this creation had animals tearing each other to pieces and suffering from disease and starvation for millions of years. Furthermore, it's almost like God anticipated the heresy 
of theistic evolution within the text of Genesis 1 itself, because he specifically says on multiple occasions that every organism will produce after its own kind. Because evolution eventually leads to distant offspring being radically different than their ancestors, evolution clearly contradicts the biblical text. And of course, Genesis 2-7 states that God formed man from the dust of the ground. So believing that man got here by evolution contradicts the details of how God said he created mankind. Now that we have sufficiently covered how the rest of the Bible treats the first chapters of Genesis, let's look at some details from Genesis itself. Before going over the first detail I want to talk about, I just want to point out that the two most popular Old Earth and evolutionary interpretations of the creation account of Genesis are the day-age theory and the gap theory. To recap, the day-age theory states that the days of Genesis 1 actually represent long periods of time, while the gap theory states that there is a gap of an indefinite period of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. With those two theories in mind, the first detail I want to point out is that Genesis chapter 1 states that God created the heaven, earth, and all life forms within six days. What really stands out to me is that after God finishes his creating work for each day, the Bible specifically notes that each day contained an evening and a morning. Now, when we take this detail into account, along with the other verses which we just looked at that are outside of the book of Genesis, a question comes to mind, and that question is, how could God have made it any more clear that these are literal 24-hour days? I mean, honestly, God explicitly states that each day had a morning and an evening, and he even numbers them for us. The day-age theory is untenable given this textual evidence. Furthermore, because God compares his creation of the heaven, which includes the entire universe, earth, and all life forms to the Israelite work week of seven literal days in Exodus 20.11, this means that he could not have created the universe and earth and then rested for millions of years before creating anything else. All of the events of creation had to have occurred within a literal six-day period without any gaps. It should be noted that while these two Old Earth interpretations attempt to reconcile the Bible with the atheistic philosophy of evolution, a major problem they have is that the order of creation in Genesis is completely different than the order of events presented in the evolutionary timeline. Because God created Earth on the first day and the sun and stars on the fourth day, both the day-age theory and the gap theory would have Earth existing for millions of years before the sun or any other stars, which would be considered ridiculous by the very evolutionists 
that proponents of these two views are trying to appease. The second detail I want to make note of is that Genesis 1.31 says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God referred to his original creation as very good because it was void of death and suffering. See, one of the biggest complaints people have about God's existence is the reality of suffering in our world. The question usually goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and loving, why did he create a world where children starve to death every day, people suffer from cancer and other diseases, and natural disasters destroy entire populations? The answer to this question is that God didn't create a world like that. Genesis plainly says that God originally created a very good world without death, but that it was man's sin which resulted in God withdrawing some of that goodness from the world and thus resulting in what is commonly known as the fall. God made a wonderful world. It was mankind that chose to rebel against God and ruin this world. However, if someone believes in evolution and millions of years, yet also claims to be Christian, then they cannot provide such a sufficient answer to the question of suffering in the world. According to theistic evolutionists, God wanted to create a world where death and suffering exist, so he actually thinks disease and natural disasters are very good. This naturally harms God's character and results in a significantly different worldview compared to the worldview of one who takes Genesis literally. And as a quick side note, I always find it comical that theistic evolutionists have no problem believing in Abraham or the story of Joseph. In fact, theistic evolutionists typically believe that 80% of Genesis is historically accurate, but because they have been influenced by the Antichrist idea of Darwinian evolution, they arbitrarily label the first 20% of Genesis as being figurative because they are letting man's philosophy dictate how they interpret God's word, which is truly a terrible thing. The third detail I want to bring up is how Genesis describes the flood of Noah as being universal. Genesis 6.13 states that God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Genesis 7.19-22 says that the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl, and of cattle, and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. As with the creation account of Genesis, the question, how could God have made it any more clear, 
also applies to the flood of Noah. God says on multiple occasions that the flood covered the entire earth and destroyed every living thing which had the breath of life. In fact, that's the whole reason God had Noah build an ark to begin with. If the flood was just a local flood, then God could have just told Noah to move. Furthermore, recall that God gave the rainbow as a sign of his promise that he would never cause such a flood to ever happen again. To think that this was just a local flood would result in God being a liar because there have been thousands of local floods in history. And we cannot forget that Jesus taught the flood of Noah to be true history. The fact that Jesus portrayed the creation account in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, and the flood of Noah as real history really makes it logically impossible for one to deny these events if they claim to be a Christian, because Christians must accept that Jesus Christ is God. If one is to deny the historical accuracy of Genesis, then they are disagreeing with God himself. And this again relates back to the true issue of this topic, which is authority. Will you choose to follow what Jesus and the Bible say about the history of the universe and life itself? Or will you choose Darwin's idea of evolution? Lastly, I want to point out that if you just read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis yourself, you'll see that there is no ambiguity about the events it records. In fact, these opening chapters of Genesis actually give an excessive amount of detail, which supports the view that this is true history. The detail that God made everything in six days which are specifically numbered and have an evening and a morning. The detail that God made man directly from the dust of the earth. The detail that God made woman from man. The details of how the fall occurred in the Garden of Eden, which resulted in a cursed creation. The detail of how big Noah's Ark was, or the detail that it rained for 40 days during the flood of Noah. All these details and many more attest to the truthfulness of Genesis. Furthermore, it cannot be stressed enough that the first 11 chapters of Genesis flow perfectly with the entire book of Genesis. Right after the flood of Noah, we are introduced to the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations, which then leads to God singling out Abraham and choosing the nation of Israel to bring about the Messiah. No matter how you look at it, fully appreciating the work and person of Jesus Christ is dependent on a proper understanding of the events of Genesis 1-11. If we cannot trust a plain reading of the very first chapter of Genesis, then how can we trust a plain reading of any other passage in the entire Bible. In fact, here is the world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins himself, noting his thoughts on theistic evolution. And was there a particular 
point that, or something that you read or an experience you had that sort of said, yeah, this is it, God doesn't exist? Oh, well, by far the most important, I suppose, was understanding evolution. Um, I think the evangelical Christians have really sort of got it right in a way in seeing uh, evolution as the enemy, um, whereas the more, what should we say, sophisticated theologians who are quite happy to live with evolution I think they're deluded. And I, think the, I think the evangelicals have got it right uh, in that there really is a deep incompatibility between evolution and Christianity. And I think I realized that at the age of about 16. Ultimately, a belief in evolution and millions of years is incompatible with Christianity. As Paul writes in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. And with that, we will finally conclude this episode. Once again, my name is Nathan, and I want to thank you for listening to the Millennial Apologist podcast. Have a good day.